you want there to be as much of a seamless transition from nanny to parent at the end of the night and in the morning as possible for the child. So that's, I think, really, really important. And so asking, you know, what their disciplinary style is and, you know, what they're comfortable doing and not doing is important. Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Maria. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy and through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the answers to the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. And welcome to the show. Hey, Maria. Hey, Shelly. <laughs> question when you had Morgan did she end up going into daycare yes but I had to go back to work at three months like yeah a lot of people or at 12 weeks I should say what kind of like was it like a center was it an in-home it was a center yeah no we didn't ever do any in-home daycare services they weren't really so the first daycare center that we utilized was actually like across the street from the office that I worked at at the time. So mm-hmm. it was really convenient for me to just like drop her off and pick her up every day. The second daycare center she went to what is like, I don't know, less than a quarter of a mile from my house. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was all about sort of convenience. We never really looked into home daycare options or anything like that. My mother-in-law did help with childcare for a little while of the first couple of years. Mm-hmm. Did you have a good experience with the daycare in general? Yeah, for sure. As far as like, no, I take it back. I was going <laughs> to say, but, but like, it's been, I mean, like it's been 10 years basically. Right, yeah. Well, I, I had to think about that for a second and be like, no, that really wasn't the case. No, I did have a good experience with them. Gosh, I don't even remember who they were, who they were called. It's a, a fairly well-known chain, I think, in mm-hmm. Massachusetts, but I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> but I did. They had no issues with me breastfeeding her, like right there mm-hmm. when I was dropping her off for the day. They were super lovely with engaging interactions with the kids, and you could tell they really enjoyed the babies. And hmm. yeah, it was good. How about you? Did any of your kids go to daycare? We actually couldn't afford daycare. Like it would have been more than my paycheck. So I just switched to evening shifts. Yeah. Which sucked, but you know, you do what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, I mean, that's a pretty common issue. Mm -hmm. Pretty much everybody in this country. Mm -hmm. Especially now. Just like unobtainable. Mm Mm-hmm. I was asking because this week's guest is Madison from Serene Moments, and she's talking to us about how to choose a daycare or a nanny for your baby when you go back to work. Totally wish I could have afforded a nanny. No, and it and one of the things that we're I wanted to ask Madison about is like nanny shares, which is still pricier, I think, than other forms of of daycare. A friend of mine, actually, a very good friend of mine, is a nanny. And she has participated as a shared nanny mm-hmm. in the past. Well, it works out well for her. Mm-hmm. I don't know on the family end of it if that's if it's more challenging. I'm sure you have to find like the right family to share the nanny with. That's important. 
Yeah, for sure. I would think they would need to be like a close family friend or somebody mm-hmm. that you were at least really familiar and spent time with, you know, outside of like everyday stuff. Well, before we speak with Madison, did you hear the news about teen pregnancy? No, tell me all about it. So the teenage birth rates in the U.S. reached historic lows in 2022. Woohoo! So the birth rate among 15 to 19 year olds in 2022 is 13.5 per 1,000 females, which is a 3% drop since the numbers and from the numbers in 2021. And it is a record low in the United States. That's awesome. And it actually has been steadily declining since 1991. Yay, birth control. (laughs) I know. Let's uh, keep our fingers crossed that we continue to have access to that because the world is going crazy but reproductive health yeah Mm -hmm. that'd be awesome and let's next do our question of the week my favorite this week's question was submitted on instagram and this question is i'm having a lot of pain in my breast and when i pump my breast milk is lumpy is this safe to feed to my baby oh so I actually learned about this kind of recently. If you have lumpy breast milk, it could be a sign of subclinical mastitis. Yep, yep. I also learned about that recently. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people think, oh, I must have had a plugged duct and then it loosened up and I just pu- am pulling out dried milk. But if you really don't have tri- like signs of a signs of a plugged duct and your milk is lumpy or it's it's lumpy in both breasts or... It might be that you're starting to develop an infection, a low-grade infection. Especially with pain. Yeah. And, I mean, maybe you have a definitive answer to this, but my thought would be it shouldn't be harmful for the baby at all. It might taste weird. Do you know what I mean? Like, the mom is noticing in this case because she's pumping, right? Right. But if she wasn't, would it have been even noticed? How many babies out there are drinking milk like that and nobody knows because right. it's straight from the tap? Right. And that and that's kind of my thinking is that, I mean, if a mom has mastitis and she's being treated for it, we certainly don't tell her to stop breastfeeding. In fact, right. we tell her to like empty that breast more frequently. Mm-hmm. So it, if we're telling a mom with, known mastitis that it's okay to breastfeed and in fact please do it frequently because it will help i don't see why pumping it and bottle feeding it would be any different Mm -hmm. i agree 100 percent. i would recommend though if you're seeing this you know at the very least get yourself on a good probiotic like target b by clear labs has been shown to help with mastitis cases and definitely connect with your ob and even if you don't have a fever or any other symptoms it might be worth getting an antibiotic just to to make sure yeah i wonder if the lumps in the breast milk would be difficult to go through a bottle nipple that's a good question i think when i've seen it it doesn't it or it might get caught. Like when I've seen it happen, when moms are pumping, sometimes they can kind of collect and get a little caught in the duckbill valve. Like if they're pumping with spectra, yeah. I imagine the same thing can happen in the bottle nipple. Mm. But interesting. I think, you know, the baby can probably suck it right now. Yeah. If they're, yeah, if they're bottle feeding well, they can probably, might be like a thick milkshake where they just have to. Yeah. <laughs> like a raw oyster. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, the only reason I would think you couldn't feed it to your baby is again, if baby was somehow put off by the taste of it, which I mean, if your body is fighting an active infection, there's probably going to be a a slight change to your breast milk Mm. flavor, according to the infant. Or a volume can drop your supply. That too, for sure. That too. But yeah, that was, that was a great question. And if you want to submit a question for Marie and I to answer on the podcast, you can do so on Instagram. Just DM me. I'm at Shelly Taft, IBCLC. And next up, we'll be speaking with Madison. Today, we are talking all about finding child care for your baby or child. And for this episode, I am bringing on Madison from Serene Moments. She provides support to families as a donor certified postpartum doula, as well as a Center for Pediatric Sleep Management certified sleep consultant. But additionally, she holds her bachelor's degree in child and family studies and is a prior nanny and daycare manager. Utilizing her experience, education, and knowledge, Madison supports families as a daytime and overnight postpartum doula and virtual sleep consultant, as well as hosting her own podcast, The Postpartum Plan, where she helps educate families on all things postpartum. Hey, Madison, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I know it's thundering and like, is it lightning there too, where you are? Oh, yeah. I don't know if you could just hear that. It just sounded like the entire house shook. Okay. Hopefully <laughs> it I won't lose power. <laughs> I don't think I should lose power. Uh, but okay. no, it's definitely thundering and lightning here. I feel like the weather has been either completely sunshine and humid or absolute downpours. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. New England. Oh, mm-hmm. it's so frustrating. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I am a postpartum doula. So I do daytime and overnight support. I'm located in Lowell, Massachusetts. So I'm up by the New Hampshire border. So I do in person in, you know, all of Northern Mass and some of Southern New Hampshire. And then I also am a certified pediatric sleep consultant. So I work with clients virtually for that. So I work with people from all over the place and it's super fun. But yeah, so I kind of have been doing this for full time now for over a year. And prior to that, I was a infant teacher and then a daycare manager. So I've been in the childcare world for for quite a bit now. (laughs) That's great. And I know when I'm working with families, either through lactation or for sleep, one of the most common questions or topics that gets brought up is daycare or childcare in general. Because right now, the childcare, finding childcare is wild. It's absolutely insane. I, yeah, I mean, I got out of college and I went and worked as an infant teacher because my, my plan originally and for my whole life was that I was going to open my own daycare. That did not end up happening, but I loved being in an infant room. And then I went to a different daycare that was larger and I absolutely loved it, but it was a lot. And I loved the one-on-one, which is why I ended up leaving. But, oh my gosh, I remember when I was managing, our daycare had about 240 children a day. We had 18 classrooms, over 60 employees and, and uh, not clients, I'm sorry, employees and um, people that worked there. And it was great, but oh my gosh, the people that would come in for tours, I felt like some of them would even come in barely pregnant. Like their families didn't even know because, oh my gosh, the wait list was crazy long. You would come in in like the beginning of the year and we'd already be on a wait list for the fall. Insane. And talk about pricing of it all too, right? It's just, Mm -hmm. 
So I find so impossible, I'm sure, to find childcare nowadays. Do you think the waitlist situation has become worse because of COVID and the labor shortage? I think that it definitely could be a big factor in it. I didn't work in daycares prior to COVID. I was always a nanny and like babysitter prior to all of that. And then when I graduated college, it was December of 2020. And so at that time was when I went and started working at daycare. So I don't know what it was like for them prior to, I know they're a very established daycare that I was working at. And so I knew that they had, you know, people coming in and they were definitely filling their rooms. But I think so many, or I said, should say, I know so many daycares did close, especially smaller ones during COVID Mm -hmm. because it just wasn't financially feasible for them to stay open. So I know that a lot of options have been kind of taken off the table, which has caused, you know, larger establishments to have insanely long wait lists and Mm -hmm. inquiries for sure. Yeah. And I don't have any statistics or anything in our area, but I know wait lists for daycare centers and such have been an issue in in cities and high population areas for quite a while but i never really heard about it outside of the city area until recently until through covid and after covid where it's all of a sudden i mean all you have to do is just look at the the local parenting groups and you'll see posts every day like i need help finding a, a daycare for my baby i'm going back to work and i've been on a wait list and it's not opening up and do you find that to be true in your area as well 100% yeah and i find that when i'm working with clients uh, for postpartum i talk to them a lot i'm like you know what's your plan for child care are you going back to work because if they aren't already on wait lists they've got to get on them as like an administrator when i was at daycares i it was a lot easier to find people spaces for us if they were more flexible. So I would always talk to people about, you know, are you flexible on doing possibly part-time to start or on the days of the week or things like that? Because Mm -hmm. there were opportunities at those times that you could get higher up on the list. But with my clients, I'm always talking to them about, you know, daycare options. We talk about the opportunity of having, you know, there's the public daycares that you can go to. There's oftentimes, like if you're looking for more preschool, like age students, a lot of times the public schools will have stuff. And then there's obviously home daycares and nannies and things like that too. So I talk to my clients a lot about all the different options and pros and cons of them, but also like, what could that look like financially difference? So. Yeah. And that was actually my next question is what are the different types of daycare and childcare and what are the key differences between them? Yeah. So typically you'll find like those larger, big daycare companies like Bright Horizons or Kinder Care or things like that. A lot of the times in those, there are a lot more of them and their curriculum and their standards and everything like that is you know, done by corporate. So the classroom teachers may not be creating their own curriculum. They might be getting it, or they might have standards that they have to meet that are according to corporate. So it really comes down to kind of what you're looking for out of your child's care. Some people are just looking for somebody to love on their kid and other people are looking for a true like educational experience. So that can also depend on what you're looking for, can also depend on, I guess, influence um, what your timeline for getting into a daycare can look like. And then there's obviously smaller daycares that might just be like, you know, Joe Schmo opened a daycare, um, which can also be really great options because a lot of the times they might be family run or they might have been there for generations and things like that. And they definitely know what they're doing too. I find that sometimes the corporate ones can be a lot like 
transactional in a way. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is nice to feel a little bit more friendly and, you know, family-like with your childcare provider because, you know, they're taking care of your kid. And then there's obviously home daycares. Home daycares are different for are different in licensure for Massachusetts than public daycares. I believe it is like that in all states. But if you have children that you're caring for in your house, you still have to be licensed. So if you're looking into home daycares, you want to make sure that they're licensed. You can also ask, you know, what their ratios are. Massachusetts regulates their ratios. Every state does. But the Massachusetts ratios for public child care is one teacher to three infants or two to seven. For toddlers, it's two teachers to nine toddlers. And then for preschool or 2.9 and up, it's one teacher to 10 kids. So that's all regulated by the state. Some people have extra teachers in there just because. But for home daycares, it's totally different because you have, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's something along the lines of you can have a certain amount of toddlers, a certain amount of school-aged kids, and you know a certain amount of infants. And you have to have you know one adult or two adults and certification is different. So it's definitely a question you kind of have to ask people when you're looking around. And then nannies, which, you know, mm-hmm. a babysitter or a nanny. I feel like way back when, I mean, you can add to this if you know, but like I feel like way back when daycares and sending your kid to childcare was like, you know, the fancy thing to do. And it was like the more money thing to do and keeping them at home and having a babysitter was like cheaper. And I feel like it's totally reversed now. Having a nanny is like very much something that is more expensive, Mm -hmm. especially if you're looking for somebody to not just be caring for your kid, but for educating them too. Yeah. And doing enrichment activities with them. Exactly. And that's something that I see in the groups all the time when people are like, I'm looking for, you know, inexpensive quote unquote nanny. And it's like, well, are you looking for someone that will do stuff with your kid? Or are you to be kind of like, um, to blunt, are you just looking for someone who just keeps your kid alive until you right until you come home and you don't really care if you get plopped in front of the TV because that is going to be a difference in in how much you have to pay as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I always mention like if you know if you have like friends that have children around the same age or anything like that, you should look into like nanny shares. Those are great options. It's essentially the idea that like two families come together and hire one nanny to care for their children together, which is great for socialization and for finances, because oftentimes rather than paying your nanny 30 to $50 an hour, you only each have to pay 15 an hour, which is much easier to pay. Granted, you have to be more flexible in the fact that like, you know, you have another kid in your house for half the week or, you know, your kid goes and stays somewhere else at their house for the half the week or, you know, work out that kind of an arrangement. But mm-hmm. it can be really nice for socialization and for the financial aspect financial aspect of things. So, I mean, that's a great option too that I find that a lot of people don't really know exists. But mm-hmm. typically that's up to families to kind of find another family to partner with. And then together they'll do an interview process. Mm-hmm. I also know of a lot of, I have a lot of clients who are nannies themselves who did this or, or hiring a nanny who did this, where they brought their own child along and therefore paid, you know, a dis quote unquote discounted rate. Is that right. something you see quite often too? Yeah. I know a lot of people have done that and it's a, it's a big option that I think a lot of like single parents do, or a lot of, you know, stay at home parents might do that, you know, might like some extra money. 
the big thing that comes along with like doing that or doing any type of nanny or babysitting work is you have to go into it, you know, as a family. And then I guess if you were providing the child's care too, but you have to go into it deciding on if you want to do something like that on the books or under the table. Cause that's the big, the big difference, which mm-hmm. a lot of nannies are going to look for things that are on the books. They want, you know, paid vacation leaves and, and, when you go away, they want to be able to be paid because they're, even though they're not working or they want to make sure that they can have insurance or things like that. And I find that a lot of families don't think about that because they're like, oh, it's just someone caring for my child. But, you know, I find that the people that you would hire that don't want to be on the books are often either younger people who, you know, don't need the, the, on the books payment for mortgages or, you know, financial reasons to make it look like they're making money um, or the insurance inside of things, which can be great because some younger people are great, but there's also a lot of turnover when you work with younger people that goes for the same for in daycares. There's definitely a lot of turnover in daycares. It's a high turnover, uh, you know, establishments because a lot of the time you're working with high school and college students or young people who are doing this as an in-between thing. Mm-hmm. So that's also something else to think about too. If you're going to hire somebody to kind of like prepare for that, some people will hire nannies and let them use the family's car or have an additional car that they use, um, give them allowances to go out and do excursions with the children. That kind of pulls me into the idea of I've had clients who have hired and brought in au pairs mm-hmm. um, from other countries, which is basically a nanny that lives in your home. And, you know, it's much discounted because you're giving them a place to live and and all of that. But in a lot of those cases, they're from other countries. So you're bringing somebody in and you're having to pay a phone for them or teaching them how to use the public transportation or drive your car or things like that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's plenty of options, but the options are not all often readily available. Like we said, there's wait lists at a lot of places. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. And I, I do have a friend who uses au pairs and has for years and as family, they love it and they save a lot of money, especially because they have four kids. So four kids in daycare would be crazy expensive. Oh, it's insane. I know somebody told me that they were a teacher and they were like, after the second kid, it made no sense going back to work. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, when it's I had crazy. um when I had my babies, I I worked at CVS as a supervisor, and we would have paid more in childcare than I would have made. And our solution was I just switched to evenings, and that meant I didn't really see my husband all the time. Right. But that was what we had to do. We had to do what we had to do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you make it work, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that it's fun. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. If parents are let's say evaluating daycare facilities and they're they're t- they're doing the tours what should they look for when it comes to safety measures that they want to make sure are in place mm, that's a great question there's so many things i mean so when i was um one of the administrators i gave I was basically the person that would give the tours unless I was like in a classroom because as I'm sure people can already tell, I love to talk. So it worked out well for me, but um, yeah, so I would give the tours. And so personally, I would always try to touch upon everything, but so it kind of takes me back to all the things that I would touch upon. I remember the first thing I would always say with that you should ask for, or myself when I was giving tours was 
you know, even if you're coming in with like a toddler or you're looking to come in in preschool or something like that, definitely still look at all the age groups, right? Like just because you're coming as a toddler doesn't mean you just want to look at toddler rooms or toddler through, you know, pre-K. Look at the infant rooms too, especially if you know that you want to have more children because, no one wants to go to two different daycares to drop their children off. So to see the whole facility and to feel like you appreciate, like, want to be part of that whole community is really, really important. So I'd say see if you can get like a full tour, including being able to go into some of the classrooms. So if you have an older child, it's also great to always ask if you can bring them along, because if you do end up enrolling, it's a great opportunity to you know, let them see the space before they're actually in the classroom and all of that. So yeah, I mean, seeing all the spaces, maybe even going into the classrooms, having your child come along with you are all great. You want to ask about their ratios. Like I said, they are typically state regulated, but that doesn't mean that people aren't going to Um, And companies and daycares aren't going to have extra staff. For example, um, I worked at a Bright Horizons one time. And as an infant teacher, there only needs to be two teachers to seven babies. But during the daytime from about, I think it was 8.30 or 9 o'clock until 4, we had three teachers at all times. So the great part about that was that we were able to cover our own lunch breaks. So, you know, we could, especially in infants where we kind of ran off of their schedules rather than having a classroom schedule. It was really nice to be like, okay, we have three babies that need to eat at this time. So like nobody's going to go on lunch from this hour to this hour. We're going to go at this time instead, which was lovely. Whereas when I worked at the other daycares, we had what we call floaters, which is essentially assistant teachers that would go around to cover lunch breaks, bathroom breaks, and whatnot. That was a little bit trickier because you didn't really get to pick when they came in, especially with a large center. You would just be like, hey, this is your lunch break hour, and this is when someone's coming in. It always worked out, and we would make it work, but it's nice to ask those types of things. I'd also say, especially if you're talking about infants, asking how they run their program. So... Typically, infant rooms are starting anywhere between two and a half and three months old is when children are typically able to enroll into daycare programs. And according to the state of Massachusetts, children are considered infants until 15 months old. So some daycares are smaller where there are children that are three months old in the same room as children that are 15 months old. Other daycares are larger, so they can divide by age bracket a bit more. So if that's something that's important to you, you can ask about that. There's benefits to both. (laughs) I find that some people love having littles and bigs because they get to kind of watch each other and they interact really well. It's also helpful to the teachers. They can give the babies more one-on-one focus feeding rather than rushing around and feeding everybody at the same time. And then there's also benefits to having an age bracket. You know, they're really close in age, so they get to make friends and stay with those friends as they grow up into the next classrooms. So that's kind of something that you could ask about. But overall, safety-wise, I mean, you can definitely ask about locks on the doors, how to enter the the buildings. A lot of them will have keypads. Some of them have individualized keypads. Some have a keypad that, you know, one code for the whole building that everyone gets. You could ask about pickups and drop-offs and what that looks like. And if they were to have somebody else pick them up, you know, typically IDs are checked, but you can ask what their protocol on that stuff is. A lot of people would ask what the protocol on sicknesses is. As we know that like every single child is going to get all the sicknesses when they first start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But getting to know the sicknesses and the protocol for that is great as well. 
And then, yeah, I mean, the only other thing that I could think of with safety wise is most daycares will require some sort or two things, I guess, um, nap checks. So like if infants are sleeping, you can ask how frequently that teachers need to check on their babies to make sure they're sleeping properly. I know for Massachusetts, everything is regulated that, you know, every baby has to get placed on their back. And if they're not, teachers are being written up for those types of things, obviously, and, and often asked to leave. But we're obviously using tightly fitted sheets, things like that. Um, so everything is regulated that way. But, you know, the nap checks time frame wise aren't regulated by the state. And the second thing would be like transitional checks for safety. So with our toddlers, a lot of the time when you're going from classroom to playground, you have to count the children X amount of times and make sure that you have the right children with you. So no one gets lost. That's not state regulated either. So if you wanted to ask about safety with that, you could ask that as well. And are there any red flag or warning signs that you might warn a parent to look for or to watch out for when they're visiting a daycare center? Yeah, that's great. I would say definitely ask to see all the rooms, right? Like as you're walking by the rooms, a lot of them will have, you know, either doors that have the windows on them or actual windows into the classrooms. Like watch the teachers interact with the children. If you can hear them, like listen, ask if you can go into a room that your child would be that age bracket for and just kind of like hang out. You could even talk to the teachers if if they let you. That's really great. You know, obviously if it's busy, <laughs> we don't want to do that because we don't want to take attention away from the students they have. But Being able to listen in is great because you can then kind of see how are they handling discipline? How are they handling, you know, conflict or how does their classroom run? Are they big, like, you know, are the kids running around or are they a lot more like regulated and going center to center or something like that? In the infant rooms, you know, are babies crying? How long are they crying for? Are they upset for, you know, are they able to feed everybody in time? How do they keep track of things? All of that kind of stuff is really great. And a lot of it is questions that you could ask and you'll get answers to, I'm sure. But it's very different to see it than to just get an answer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'm sure very different to ask a teacher that question. And I'm sure you'll get a little bit different of an answer because it's not very robotic. As somebody who gave tours, I can tell you I said the same things over and over that it does feel robotic after a while. So I'm sure getting it from a teacher would be a bit more candid if they let you, obviously. Mm -hmm. Red flag-wise... It really depends on kind of what you're looking for. If you're looking for a very like fun kind of play school, then you might not be looking at curriculum and you might just be making sure that they're handling, you know, discipline and how the children are treating each other. Whereas if you're looking for a daycare that has a lot of curriculum and educational aspects to it, you might be, you know, looking to make sure that they have structured activities going on or, you know, ask to see the curriculum that they wrote wrote up for that week. I had one client who was giving a tour, who came for a tour at one point who had allergies. So they would ask a lot about those protocols. So obviously if you have an allergy or experiencing something like that in your family, you'll want to know that. And that's, I guess, also makes me think of something else you can ask when you're looking at daycares is some of them provide food, um, meals, snacks. Some of them provide laundry and will you know, provide crib sheets and things, or we'll wash all your laundry for you. So you don't have to take it home. So that's something else you can ask. There's so many things. I feel like I could talk about it for hours. (laughs) (laughs) And then to kind of pivot the conversation a little bit, if a family is more interested in the nanny route, like an in-home nanny, what are some tips that you would, you would give them for interviewing nannies? Like what kind of questions they should ask, what things they should look for? Yeah. So finding nannies can be 
difficult because you really want someone to match your vibe. I've done, I've been a nanny before. I've been a babysitter before. I kind of like know some of the things that people look for and don't look for. So that's kind of like cool because I have another perspective to it. Like when I interview, I know what I want to know from the families, (laughs) but there's a lot to it. So I think the first question would be, you know, sitting down as a family, deciding if we want to do this, something on the books, off the books, what tasks are we expecting of the nanny? Are we expecting them to just take care of our child? Are we expecting them to do light housework in relation to our child, like dishes that they make or the child's laundry or things like that? Are we expecting them to be more of a house manager where they are, you know, doing grocery store runs and they are handling daycare drop-offs and pickups, or, you know, I guess they wouldn't be doing daycare, but like school if they had an older Mm -hmm. child, or are they expected to do some vacuuming and cleaning when the kids are sleeping? Those kinds of things. You know, what are you comfortable with? Are they comfortable you know, driving your child, what are you comfortable with? Are you comfortable with them driving your child or medications? There's lots of things that you have to kind of figure out before you ask them because you want to know what your perspective is on it. It's up to you on if you ask it as an open-ended question, as in like, are you comfortable driving our children? Or if you're saying, you know, we're looking for someone to drive our children, would you do that? That's different, but it's important to know kind of what you're looking for and what tasks you're expecting of them. Now, I think that On the other side of things, it's also good to know their experience and like professionalism and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's great to ask what experience they have with children. And if you're looking for somebody who is more educational and is more curriculum-based and going to be doing activities and things like that with them, I would definitely ask questions specific to that. Even ask to see examples of things that they've created or things like that, because A lot of babysitters will then think that they want to be nannies and babysitters don't typically do that kind of stuff. And so not to say that people shouldn't be given a first shot because how else do you learn? But if you're looking for somebody who's definitely established, then you want somebody that, you know, knows how to put those types of things together, has developmental understanding of children's age brackets and what they should be learning when. So I think that that's, that's really important. But I mean, overall, it really depends on what you're looking for. I think that nannies really has, and similarly to postpartum doulas when I talk to clients, but you're bringing someone into your home in a time where you really need to trust them, right? As a postpartum doula, you're bringing me into your home during a vulnerable time. In a similar manner, you're bringing a nanny into your home in a vulnerable time where you're trusting them to help raise your child. In a lot of circumstances, that nanny's going to be with your child more than you're going to be with your child. So you want to make sure that not only are they able to follow your parenting style and what you're looking for, but like ideally that's how they would parent this child anyway or handle this child's behavior. You know, how are we handling, you know, getting in trouble and discipline? How are we handling sickness? You know, all of these different things, you know, screen times, all of the things that a parent would typically be doing this nanny should be doing the same. You want there to be as much of a seamless transition from nanny to parent at the end of the night and in the morning as possible for the child. So that's, I think, really, really important. And so asking, you know, what their disciplinary style is and, you know, what they're comfortable doing and not doing is important. I don't know if you can technically do them anymore because I know like when we were in the daycare, we weren't allowed to do them, but like working interviews are really cool or like Mm -hmm. a trial period, I guess. To like have them come in and like see how they interact with your child, I think would be 
a super awesome opportunity. But I think it was some have... families who've done that for yeah. nannies, where they yes. they interviewed a bunch of nannies. They kind of narrowed it down to two, and then they did a couple days with one nanny, a couple days with another nanny, and then kind of made the decision yeah. based on that. Yeah, because they might both be great. And the child might end up just like gravitating towards one. And that's mm-hmm. kind of nice to feel. But also, I mean, I think everyone can agree that you can look great on paper, right? Like yeah. answer <laughs> all the questions the right way, really want that job. But mm-hmm. like with time, how much fatigue, like the fatigue of like faking it goes away. So you really get to know what there really are. So yeah, I mean, I, I know that's a lot of information and it's also kind of generalized because it really depends on what you're looking for. But I think that there's, you know, a lot to be, to be part of that. And I'm sure that the nannies, if you're hiring a good nanny and you're interviewing good nannies, if you ask them if they have questions, ideally they have questions for you, right? It might be about insurance and, you know, payroll type things. It might be about leave and whatnot, but ideally they also will be asking, you know, what is your child like? What are you looking for? And like, it should be kind of a two-way interview. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess that this is based on the type of childcare and their goals with childcare. But are there certain qualifications and certifications parents should look for? Like you mentioned, if you want someone who's going to do more educational stuff, you'd want them to have at least a background in that area. And I'm also guessing that CPR is is an, a no-brainer. Like whoever yes. you're having watch your child should be CPR certified. But but there any other qualifications you would want to look for? So there's a couple things. I mean, if we go back to kind of that daycare topic, the state of Massachusetts is certified by the early education and care. They're amazing, but they do all the certification stuff. So when you go to interview or to walk around at daycares, you can ask them, but it is required by the state of Massachusetts that there's at least one certified teacher in the room. In order to be certified, you have to have a certain amount of classes, a certain amount of hours. You have to renew things every few years. You know, there's expectations held. And then there can be assistant teachers who may not have these classes under their belt, but are able to be in a room if they're with a certified teacher. They can't be alone with the children. It could be a similar question that you could ask a a nanny though. If they've worked in a daycare before, they might like the one-on-one and so they might've left and now they're looking for nannies. That happened a lot during COVID Hmm. because in daycares, daycare teachers don't get paid nearly the amount that nannies do because there's no overhead and they get to charge a bit more because it's more of a luxury to have a nanny. So the money goes straight to them, which is great because that really kind of helps to fix that wage gap that's happening for a lot of educators. But like I said, a lot of them left daycares during COVID and went to nanny work because daycares were closed and never went back. So Mm -hmm. if you're interviewing, some of those nannies might have teacher certifications or director certifications or things like that. So you can definitely ask about that. CPR, yes, it like didn't even cross my mind because it is like a given, I feel like in a way, but yeah. There's typically first aid for first aid and CPR courses that are kind of combined. So you can ask about that as well. If you're working with an infant, it would be really great to ask if they have infant experience. Now, I've heard through a handful of friends and people that I know that a lot of like people and nannies when they're interviewing clients are asking them like, oh, how many years do you have with infant experience? And a lot of them are like, oh, we're looking for somebody that has X amount of years, right? But it's tricky when you're like talking about years of experience with a certain age group, because personally, I would think I would look for somebody that has 
like accountability and stays with that family, right? Like you want longevity rather than hours and years with a certain age bracket. Because to me, if you're asking, you know, how many years have you worked with infants? Well, I've worked with five years. Well, that means how long have you been working in total, right? Like how many families mm-hmm. how are you are you jumping from? So that's kind of important too, but you want them to know some sort of infant's experience if you ever have infants, specifically talking about safe sleep. You know, are you understanding and do you know the new regulations or the updated regulations of safe sleep? You know, this is what we're doing. Like, have you done that before or before you even tell them what you're doing? What kind of practices have you had in place with infants before that you've worked with for safe sleep and kind of seeing, kind of testing their knowledge a little bit so that they can't kind of fib. But I think that that's really important if you're doing, you know, solids with an infant and you want somebody who is familiar with, say you're doing baby led weaning and you want someone familiar with that. You want to ask them about that. You know, you know how to do the Heimlich for food, things like that. I think there's lots of little things that come with infancy that you want to make sure, you know, that people are comfortable with, which typically if you're going into an interview with an infant, you have infant experience, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's good to double check for sure. Very true. Do you find that nannies often have a contract they want families to sign? Did you have a contract as a nanny or do you think that just really depends on the family and the nanny? Like what is standard in your experience? It's a great question. So I've labeled myself as a nanny in the past because I've done nanny-like tasks, right? I've done educational things that have been with families that I'm doing, you know, pickups and drop-offs. I'm more than just a babysitter that's keeping your children alive and plopping them on the couch in front of a TV. With that being said, I haven't been a full-time nanny with one family. So like I've worked with multiple families and kind of made my own schedule out of a couple families. So I've never used a contract for a nanny client before. However, if you're hiring somebody for full-time hours, it's pretty much expected. When I was doing that with with clients, it was so many different people that some of them were just occasional hours. So, you know, they weren't on the books types of things because it wasn't a lot of much of anything. And that was just occasional, like here and there, random stuff. But when you're working with, you know, a family consistently and constantly, you should be having anything on the books because, you know, (laughs) taxes, (laughs) all the things Mm -hmm. that nobody wants to deal with. But yes, contracts are very typical. It typically will have you know, information on if they do need to leave, how much time notice they need to give you. You really, really, really should list anything that you are expecting them to do. Even if you're like, I possibly might want them to do my laundry. So we're going to add it on there just so that it's listed. Because if down the road, they aren't doing stuff that they should be, you can have like, this is what we agreed upon. Like we need to talk about this kind of a conversation. So listing that out, especially if it's tasks not related to the children, because a typical nanny is doing baby laundry or, you know, cleaning up after meals that their children are doing and, you know, going out and getting supplies for activities that they need. But, you know, if it's non-related to the child and it's more just house related, it's really important to have that written down. You want to have information on there about like sicknesses and sick days and paid time off and vacations and everything like that in relation to vacations. If the family's going away, is the nanny expected to join you? Is she expected to pay her own way? Is that a vacation by vacation kind of differentiation? Depends. What else? A lot of clients will add information on payment, you know, if it's payroll or not, as well as any type of like petty cash fund money for, you know, curriculum activities, but also going out and doing things. 
some people will add information about, you know, medication and driving for like a waiver or for, you know, them to make sure that they have the ability. So if the family is away, I've had to do this in the past where I've cared for children and the parents have been away, that can be paperwork that states, you know, if the parents aren't available, the nanny is able to make medical decisions if God forbid something were to happen. Yeah. Same thing with like driving, you know, if you put them on your insurance, then that's different. And if you're giving them a car, that's different. But if not, you know, are they accountable? Are they not accountable if there were to be an accident, if their car was totaled or um, something with their car, they weren't able to get there. You know, are you, is the client in the family paying to help fix things if they were on the clock or not? I know some clients pay mileage. Other people will say, okay, we kind of split the bills that go along with my car. So like I pay for this oil change, they pay for the next kind of a thing. If they're using their own cars, car seats, it's really just best to literally think through, like think through a day, a typical day, what, what could happen and basically write down anything that you can think of because the more detail you have on paper, the better it is for down the road. And it doesn't need to be one of those like super legally binding contracts. I mean, that's probably great, but at the same time, it's probably just as good to just have something written down just so that you have some sort of accountability and just to kind of go from there from, from that. I'm sure you can find, I I should say I'm 99% sure you can find contracts online that some probably are even free, but downloadable, editable nanny contracts that you could, Mm -hmm. you could do. There's also nanny agencies you can hire that will do it for you too. That's a great tip. Yeah. Yeah. When, and I see this typically with daycare centers, but I have a lot of families that are very kind of stressed out about feeding and naps at daycare. Like, for example, families who are like, my baby will only contact nap. He won't sleep in the crib. And they've never really wanted to stop the contact napping because it's always worked for them. But now, you know, daycare is coming up and they're concerned about how the daycare is going to handle a situation like that. Or if you have a baby who's not really taking the bottle and is being cup fed instead, like how do daycare centers in your experience handle situations like that? Yeah. Is it something parents should be stressed about? It's tricky. I mean, yeah. don't be stressed about it. But it's definitely something that's going to be have to change in a way, right? As much as I would love to sit here and tell you that daycares will 100% contact nap with your child and they're going to, you know, try to feed them in a million different ways and, and handle all of this. It's important to also remember that if you're choosing a daycare, yes, you're choosing good child care for your child and they're going to take care of your child, but your child may not be their number one priority the entire day. Your child will be their number one priority when they're feeding them, when they're changing them, when they're putting them to sleep, but there are likely going to be six other children in the room that need to be cared for. And if your child's the number one priority all the time, then the other children are going to be not being able to be that priority. And then their parents are upset, right? So that's the give and take with daycare is that you have to remember and understand that like there is a group setting. So a lot of times we would get people that that would bring their babies in that didn't sleep very well or you know were struggling with bottles if possible i always urge clients to reach out to an ibclc to do a bottle consult or a sleep consultant to talk about napping prior to because i think not only does it help the child but it relieves some anxiety for the parents and it's it's really kind of helpful to the daycare providers too but i will say i've worked with a handful of both babies that have struggled with bottles and with sleep when they've come to daycare. My 
typical suggestion is if you have the ability to send your child back a week or so before you go back to work, if that's why you're sending your child to daycare, please do so. Not only do your children often get sick when they first go to daycare because of their immune systems needing to get built up. Secondarily, I find a lot of the time that if they are refusing a bottle or a nap, that it's really nice to ease into it. So for example, when I was first working in an infant room, we had a baby come in who absolutely wouldn't take a bottle. You know, we would give her, and she was pretty much basically exclusively breastfed from the breast. So when she came in, we tried the bottle mom brought and, you know, she would drink 0.25 to a half an ounce and wouldn't do it. And we would wait at the hour. She still wasn't able to. So then the next bottle, we're like, okay, we don't want to waste the milk. Let's just put a little bit into a different bottle. And we try different nipples and we try different positioning and, you know, distract the baby, look at her, don't look at her, all the different things. And Eventually, yes, baby would take some, but definitely not enough that they would typically be taking per feed. And in those cases, you know, we're often talking to the parents on the phone after every feed or every hour or two calling because they would ask for updates and saying, you know, this is what we're experiencing. You know, this baby is definitely not, she's not eating as much, but she definitely is going down for a nap. She's tired. So let's let her nap and we'll try another feed when she wakes. And if she still doesn't take it, why don't you come pick her up and we'll make sure she gets fed. Same thing with napping babies. You have to expect that naps are going to go one way or the other completely when you get to daycare. Some daycares with infant rooms have cribs in the same room. So if there are children that are older that are walking or crawling, a lot of the times they'll go up to the cribs and they can like somehow stir or wake up babies. Other rooms have like a half wall or a crib room that they can be in so the other babies can't reach them, which is great. But I find that either babies come in and they are not great sleepers and they get used to the noise because they aren't used to the noise, right? They get used to it all and then they sleep great Mm -hmm. or they come in and their naps get shorter. And at home, parents are saying, oh, they nap two hours. Well, here they're napping 20 to 40 minutes because they're getting one sleep cycle. Sometimes with time that gets better. Other times babies just end up napping like that. And if that's the situation in your case, definitely talk to a sleep consultant because we can help you to adapt, you know, your nighttime routine to offset that daycare time because again, there's seven babies in the room. So the daycare providers are going to try their best to get your baby to go back to sleep after a sleep cycle. But if there's two other screaming children that need to eat, that can be very difficult at times. I say all of this not to be scary or to cause more anxiety, but to give the real and raw of it, Mm -hmm. you know, that some babies do great, some don't, and it takes time. And a lot of it is a true adjustment for sure. Mm -hmm. So give them time and talk with your daycare providers. A lot of the times they will call you often throughout the first few days or week to let you know how things are going, but they've also have seven babies in the room and they've likely done this time and time again. So they Mm -hmm. might have some really great input for you. I know input I would give date families from one daycare is different than the input I would give families from another daycare because one of the rooms that I was in had no crib room and the other one did. So things were very different, you know, so it's great information to get right from your provider. And I have found when I'm working with parents with preparing to go back to work, and these are not babies that are bottle refusers, they, but when they, the first week at the daycare, they tend to eat a lot less. And the parents usually do message me in the pan- in a panic. And I usually say, let's just see what next week looks like. Yes. Because I always feel like there's a transitionary period for some babies where they're just like, I am so, 
I'm busy looking around, figuring out where the heck I am, what's going on, that they don't eat that much. But then week two, they go back to their normal feeding amounts. Did you find that to be true when you were working? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The overstimulation is unreal. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I will tell you that it depends on daycares, but like one of the centers I was at would allow you to like lay babies down on the boppies. And so if I could feed two children at the same time, so I would feed two each on the boppy and we would try our best to pace feed. But to be honest with you, when I was in the daycare, no one really knew about pace feeding. I didn't really learn about a lot of it till I was later. And now I look back and like, you know, if you're feeding two and they're on boppies, you're kind of pace feeding in a way, but a little different. It's kind of like feeding twins. Um, Mm -hmm. But yes, overstimulation to the max between sounds, things to look at, things that you see all of a sudden you're drinking a bottle and you see a child walking next to you. Like I can only imagine, you know, just being this tiny human, especially when they come at like three, four months old, it's so overstimulating and that's so typical. So talk to your daycare provider before you go. If you're sending bottles about how do they prep the bottles? Like Are they warming them? And then what's their protocol and how long that they can be used for? Because I know, like I said, with my bottle refuser baby, she only took like half an ounce and we felt so bad because we couldn't use the rest of the three ounces or whatever it was in the bottle. So some daycares will allow you to bring a bunch of empty bottles and then here's my milk and like you can portion it. Some, I had one daycare that didn't let you, you had to bring the bottle and that was what we fed. And then anything that was left, we had to send home. We weren't allowed to dump it or anything. Some daycares dump it. So ask because some people want to save their milk to use it for bath time or other uses. But I had one person who, because we had to have specific bottles, she was like, well, baby normally drinks four ounces, but she's been drinking weird for you. So I gave you double the amount of bottles with two ounces in each of them. (laughs) And that was great because, you know, we would warm one. And if she started chugging it, we'd just throw the other one in the warmer. So it was ready. But yeah, those are great. So many questions to ask, but typically they'll answer all these questions before you can even ask them. Oh, great. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Is there any anything else that you think parents should know when they're deciding on a daycare or childcare? I mean, I think the really big thing to remember is like the whole gist of this, I think that you should take, if you could take anything away, is that every single family's needs and and hopes for child care are so different. And just because your neighbor loved one daycare doesn't mean that it needs to be the right one for you. And just because your sister has a nanny doesn't mean that you need to feel bad about putting your child in daycare. You know, everybody's has different needs and wants, and we shouldn't be, you know, parent guilting each other into different things. So, you know, do what works for you. And if you are at a tour and it doesn't feel right, trust your gut, you know, mm-hmm. and ask, don't be afraid to ask the questions because we're happy to answer them. Or at least I was used to be happy to answer all the questions when I was, when I was managing one. So for sure. Yeah. Yep. Trust your gut. I love that. Parenting yes. instincts are always on point. Oh my gosh. So on point for <laughs> sure. So where can people find you if they want to connect with you and learn more about you and your, your services? Yeah, for sure. So like I said, I do in-person daytime and overnight support for postpartum and also virtual sleep consulting. I think uh, you're going to plan to put a link in the show notes. I do three free 30-minute consultation calls for both to kind of chat with people. But you can also find me on social media at serenemoments.doula. And then I also have a podcast called The Postpartum Plan. You guys can head over and listen to Shelly's episode with me that's over there. (laughs) Great. And I'll link to all of those in the show notes. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. This was a this was a lot of fun. I love this topic. <laughs> 
Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTaftIBCLC.com, where you can check out more options for support through pregnancy and beyond, including the Baby Pro Bistro, our parenting community. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTaftIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes to help our episodes reach more parents like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.